Great to be back with you all again. Uh, some of you who are regular attenders here in the auditorium may remember a year and a half, maybe two years already, time flies. When I came out onto this stage, put on my best Mr. Rogers cardigan, did my best impersonation of, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I'm here to tell you, today is not gonna be that day. Uh, today we're going to sense and feel quite intentionally because I think our text merits and warrants this. We're going to sense in the tension of some intensity. And there's going to be a certain level of uncomfortableness, if that's a word, of being uncomfortable. And I think that's going to be okay too. So I would invite you to turn to Revelation 6. And as you do that, maybe some of you are already there, but as you do that, let's remember what many of our speakers the last few weeks, and myself included, when we launched into this series of Revelation. So back from week one, I shared with you and many others have shared that the purpose of Revelation was to comfort and assure the people of the seven churches that received this letter. To assure the faithful, but it is also a warning. And I think we'll see that very clearly today. Remember, too, that this entire letter was showing that God is in control. And if you remember, I made this statement it's more about the who and the how than the what and the when. So I want you to keep all those things in mind as we go. And so far, we've seen some wonderful, beautiful pictures that have been painted for. Chapter one, if you remember way back, it was this beautiful and glorious picture of Christ. Chapters two and three, as we went through the letters, and Clayton was here, and he talked about one in particular, but all of them kind of fit this mold where it was saying, God knows you. He knows you personally. And then last week, Kathy, we set up a beautiful picture of worship around the throne. And then that kind of led us to asking, who is the center of your worship? Who is the center of the decisions that you make? And here's what's interesting. These first five or six chapters, or yeah, first five chapters rather, are fairly unified with, across the board with how people feel and their interpretation of them. But starting in chapter 6, we dive right in and we start to see some of the differences that have separated and people are in one corner or they're in one camp and we're going to start to see some of that. An example is very quickly found in verse 1 is, are we even going to be here in the tribulation? We're going to have others who say we are not. You move on to uh, verse 2 where the rider of the white horse Who's the rider of the white horse? I read one commentary that said, this is Jesus. I read another commentary later that afternoon and said, it's not Jesus, it's this. And I read a third commentary, which I shouldn't have done, that said none of that is true. There are some wonderful, godly people. In fact, if you go over to the 11 o'clock service, you're going to hear Clayton's interpretation of who's on the white horse is a little bit different than mine. But again, we talked first week, let's not get bogged down in the details. Continue to think big picture. Because here's 
what I feel like I need to remind all of us one more time. I feel like we as a church body, as we are on this adventure of looking at the book of Revelation, I think we need to approach it with the proper humility. There's a variety of interpretations, and we've been talking about that for weeks. And that variety, that differing of interpretation should always drive us to humility. And at the same time, never drive us to despair. We should never get to the point where there's despair, where we think no one knows what's going on here. Nobody understands this, because that, quite frankly, is not true, because God does. God knows. He has made some things abundantly clear for us. We know how it's going to end, for example. Christ is going to come back. He's going to come back for his people. He's going to come back for his church. He's going to usher in the consummation of the kingdom of God where we will all reign with Christ. We know that we will enjoy the presence of God one day in a new heaven and a new earth forever. That's what we know. That's why there's no need to despair. So church, can I plead with all of us as we continue our studies, as even amongst our church family here, as we maybe have a differing of opinion on some of the different details, can I just say on the essentials? Think Apostles' Creed. We need to have unity. On all the other stuff, we need to have grace and humility as we maybe don't agree with everything that our neighbor or somebody else might be thinking. So as we continue today and as we dive into these two chapters, let me ask a rather odd question of all of us. Show of hands real quick just so I get it. Has anybody besides my wife and myself been on a tour bus tour? Just quick shake it. All right, come on, raise them high because the lights are Okay. So you guys will probably know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, I'm going to give you a little clue. There are going to be things when you go on a tour bus tour that you spend way more time on than you think you probably should. And there are going to be some really cool things that you wish you would spend hours at that they barely even stop the bus. That's going to be me today. There are going to be things in our passages that you think, I can't believe he didn't linger there longer and really dive into this. That's going to be your homework. And there's going to be other things you're going, I didn't even see that. Why is he sitting there? That's okay too. But with that, let's just dive in, shall we? Now here's the interesting thing. Here's my challenge. <laughs> here's my challenge. My first draft of this sermon, my dear friends, was one hour long. I've been up since four trying to cut it down to around 30 minutes. We'll see how I do. But again, the point of that telling you that is, uh, I hope you've brought your Bibles, I hope you brought a pen, or I hope you have a really good memory, because I'm going to touch on some things, I'm going to mention some things in passing, and I hope that in the coming days or the week ahead, as you dive into this, that you can do some of your own homework, that you can kind of do your own investigating. So today, here's what I hope to do verse in chapter 6 and 7. I'm going to highlight four different truths, so be listening for four different truths. The first truth out of this passage is this, God is ultimately sovereign. God is ultimately sovereign, in particular, over evil. 
Just like we saw God was at the center of our worship last week, where he's the center of everything, be sure you see this. We've got to get this before we go any farther in today's message. Be sure you see this. God is at the center of everything that we're going to talk about today. See the language. Open your Bibles. Go with me here. Go to chapter 6, and here's my encouragement. Underline every time you see some sort of authority or permission that's given. If I run through here with you, it looks right here. Chapter 6, verse 2. A crown was given to him. Verse 4, the writer was permitted to take the peace from the earth. Verse 8, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. They were given. They were given a crown. They were given permission. They were given authority. Who's giving that? God is. God is. These writers are nothing in and of themselves. Everything they have has been given to them by God. The only authority they have has been granted to them by God. And it continues into the next chapter, 7, verse 2. Underline it here. The four angels who had been given power, here it is, not to harm the earth or the sea. The next chapter, chapter 8, 2. I know it's not part of a reading, but you'll get the theme. Seven trumpets were given to them. Verse 3 in chapter 7. And he was given much incense to offer. If you jump ahead to verse 9, Excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1, he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. 9, verse 3, the locusts were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. 9, verse 5, they were allowed to torment for five months. They were allowed to do this. Do you catch the theme? We're not done yet. We go on to chapter 13. It's filled with where God's giving. God's giving authority. He's the one that's in charge. He's the one that's in charge. God is sovereign. In all of this, even the worst of it, God is sovereign. It's very clear. And if it isn't in the last two and a half minutes, I'm going to say it very clearly. The Satan and his demons can do nothing apart from divine permission. They're on a leash. Christ is in control of it all. So these four horsemen that we see in chapter 6, they are not out of control. They are in control, and hear this, they are ultimately, they are bringing about the purposes of God. Ultimately bringing about the purposes of God. So just for a moment, put yourself in the shoes of that early church, those early uh, first century brothers and sisters Can you imagine what they're wandering as Nero's been persecuting Christians left and right after the fire of Rome back in AD 64? They were wondering what's going on in the cities that are struck by earthquakes when evil and suffering is everywhere around them. Friends, I think these visions that John shared with them through these letters, these visions are a vivid reminder to them and they should be a vivid reminder to us. Christ is in control. I could have ended the sermon there. Would have been pretty good, really. Because as you know, if you look, flourishing in tough times, 
It's the theme of this whole series, flourishing in tough times. When suffering comes, when you and I are suffering, and we don't even know what kind of suffering we're going to be facing in the years to come, but when and if it does come, know that God is in control. Truth number two, men and women are morally responsible for evil. Men and women are morally responsible for evil. From one horseman to the next, we see evil and sin spiraling out of control on the earth. In these images, we see the sinfulness of man on display. It's really interesting. Write this one down because I want you to read it closely on your own. Matthew 24. You're going to see some of the exact same things when Jesus was asked what the end of times are going to look like. You're going to see almost some parallel things. If you don't believe me there, look at Ezekiel 14. You're going to see almost parallel things. Ezekiel 14 and Matthew 24. Jot them down. Go look at them later. Powerful stuff. Remember, we've said all along, Revelation is not telling us anything new. Revelation is not telling us anything new. Let me introduce you real quickly, because we're not going to spend much time on these four horsemen. Who are these four characters? The white horse. I believe, after all my study, and I just really believe this, I believe the rider of the white horse is an imitation of Jesus. Because he's very similar. In fact, if the truth be known, if you look at chapter 19, because this is where some people get that it's Jesus, if you look, the white horse is really the only thing that's the same. Here's my interpretation for us, what the white horse might look like. There are many ways to salvation. It's an imitation savior. Jesus refers to it in Matthew 24. There will be many who come and say they are the savior, but they are not. The red horse symbolizes war. You see that in Matthew 24, 6. Friends, we, every one of us, have a bent toward war. If you don't believe that, come hang out with my young grandchildren sometime. Love them. But you would think they are early on have a bent toward war. But I'm going to take it one step further with this red horse. Because I think at the crux of war is rage and anger. Ooh, now we're hitting close to home. If you don't believe me, jump on the internet. Jump on Twitter. If you don't believe me, ride around town and see the signs in the yards. Rage and anger are unfortunately becoming the norm. Anger is more and more and more so ruling our lives. The black horse, famine. Jesus talks about it in 24, verse 7. Particularly Revelation 6, 6. That's kind of an odd one. Can I read that back to you again? It says this, Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and wine. Anybody beside me go, what? He's talking about famine. About a day's wage. I'm going to be real simple, as this won't surprise you, because I like to keep things simple, but it just really resonated with me. 
My summary of that is that the world is actually providing. We are all seeking things that we don't need. And we leave the luxuries, the bread and wine, and we leave those alone. Or another way of saying it is, it's a famine of the soul. We're famished. We're chasing after this, we're chasing after that, but the things that we really need, we're leaving. And then what's really interesting, then you got the guy on the white horse saying, this way, this way, so you can see how this is all working together. Then you got the pale horse. Yellow, green, one commentator just called it what it was, puke colored. Death. Death. Kind of a combination of all the others put together. Friends, these writers were present back in the early church days when this letter was written, and they are present now. We see the sins of men and women coming full circle. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Men and women are decidedly sinful. Jot this one down. Go spend some time in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Go spend some time in Romans 1, 2, and 3 this week as we talk about some of these things because it talks in those verses in Romans 1 where God gave them over to their sins. He's got a long laundry list of different sins. It says God gave them over to their sins. We're seeing that God... But excuse me, we're seeing that by ignoring God leads to a dark and downward spiral. And we see it here in Revelation. Here's the reality. I'll hit real close to my heart. It's not that we are not just going in the wrong direction, or to, excuse me, not that we're just going in the right direction with an occasional misstep. Friends, I think it's important for us to realize that we are totally going the wrong direction because of our sinful nature. We're running in the wrong direction. Sinfulness, friends, is not just a bothersome headache. It's a lethal cancer. So from one horse to the next, we see a progression of sin and strife do you see the things, how they're growing with intensity as they go from one to the next? Ooh, 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 ooh. That should, if you are familiar at all with Matthew 24, what's Jesus say? These are going to be a sign. It's going to be like the beginnings of labor pains. Now, I'm not a woman. Don't claim to be a woman. I've seen enough TV shows to know this thing about labor. One, as they happen, they increase with their intensity and they increase with their frequency. Hmm. See the effects of sin here. I'm not gonna, I'm, I want to beat this literally with a dead horse. Because I think we, starting right here, we all have a tendency to rationalize our own personal sins. We all have a way of justifying our own sin. To minimize our sin. But friends, Satan doesn't tempt you and me with images of riders on dark horses leading us away to death. No, 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 no. 
Satan is much trickier than that. He masquerades as an angel of light. He tempts you and me with enticing pictures of sin and pleasure. I'm just here to beg with all of you, don't believe it. Side note, oh, this is going to get me off track. I just watched a documentary on an NBA ref a couple years, no, several years ago now that was charged with gambling and, and, and fixing games, if you will, of NBA games that he was refing. It started so simply. A golfing buddy simply asked him, hey, who would you pick in this NBA game? Little step. But the... None of us are immune from those baby steps becoming something that's out of control. Revelation 6 reminds all of us, sin destroys. Sin destroys you. It destroys others. Even the so-called little sins have devastating effects. So the fourth writer makes it so abundantly clear that we all deserve death. We all deserve death because of our sin. And it's all around us, it's tempting us, it's luring us, it's attempting to lead us away, but it has such devastating and destructive, and it's ultimately deadly. Again, I can be the first to raise my hand as I sit and think about my own life not that bad. What I'm doing isn't really that much different than what I see everybody else doing. What I'm doing doesn't seem to be hurting anybody, so what's the big deal? I can handle this. That's what that NBA ref was basically saying. I got this under control. I got it. He didn't have it, neither do we. Can I remind all of us again, Romans 3, there is no one who is righteous. No one understands. No one who sees God. All of us have turned away. No one does good. No one, not even one. I warned you, we don't like hanging around thinking about this. A lot more fun, a lot easier to think about Mr. Rogers. We're leading a class, and there's a book called Deeper that we're talking about. My wife and I are leading this, and the, and the picture that he paints, because, again, God's got some crazy ideas of how things are supposed to work. The chapter that we just went over last Wednesday lines up almost perfectly with what this is. So that's where my sermon turned into an hour real quickly, because I took all that stuff. The picture he paints is, it's like a trampoline. And I say that because I think that's the value of us sitting in this uncomfortable place for a while. Because if you think about a trampoline, you go down, but when you go up, oh, that's where the glorious fun happens. That's where the joy, that's where the yippies, that's where, that's where we will go. So hang with me. But I think we've got to go down to come up. Because if you don't know this, this is not nearly so glorious. If you don't know this, who needs Jesus? 
If I really am handling this, who needs a guy on the cross? Every one of us. Truth number three. Revelation 6 and 7 calls God to judge men and women who turn from him and live for the world. I'll say that again. God calls, or the Revelation 6 and 7 calls God to judge men and women who turn from him and live for the world. These seals are ultimately depicting the divine judgment and divine justice of God upon a sinful world. Whew, could it get any heavier? It's upon sinners who've turned from him and lived for the world. Revelation 6.10, where the saints are under the altar of God and they cry out, O sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Or the NIV translation reads, the inhabitants of the earth. You might want to underline that phrase, those who dwell or those who inhabit the earth. That phrase, as we will see in Revelation, because it comes back again, it's going to describe the non-Christians, the non-believers. It's going to be those who put their things in trust other than God. They put their trust in the world who live for this world, who worship the idols of this world instead of worshiping God. Chapter 6 tells us that's who is under the judgment of God. And that's a reality that is very evident as we open the sixth seal. If you look at verse 10, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from fig trees. When, from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and every island was removed from its place. These verses are so loaded with Old Testament. Got your pens handy? Here you go. Here's more homework. You'll see Isaiah 13, Isaiah 24. You'll see Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 32, Ezekiel 14, Joel 2, Habakkuk 3. You can come get these later. Matthew 24, Mark 3. You just see it everywhere. In those few short verses, that's where the Old Testament's coming in. God will come to judge men and women who turn from him and who live for this world. The scope of that judgment, you can just see it, I just read, the scope is cosmic. Can you even imagine, can you even visualize in your own brain what John saw? Can you take a picture, just for a moment, where heaven itself is rolling up like a piece of paper, rolling up like a scroll. The sun, it's light blotted out so that it resembles a black sack used in mourning. The big full moon becomes a huge, awe-inspiring, bloody ball. The stars turned out of their orbits and plunging to earth in a great shower. The earth itself quaking violently. I'm thinking Mount Sinai. Can you even picture all that? Every mountain, every island, gone. What a picture of dread. What a picture of confusion for the wicked. So it makes real good sense if you go back to Romans 1. If you look in Romans 1 where it says the essence of sin is man worshiping creation rather than the creator. So here the creator takes all of creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the skies, everything underneath him, and he just obliterates it all. Nothing that you and I put in God's place will stand. Nothing will stand. 
The breadth of his judgment will be universal. And then verse 15 gives us the list of every kind of person that's gonna be under the judgment. The kings and the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, the slaves, the free, everyone without exception, everyone without exception will hide themselves in the caves. That's what our text says. They'll hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Can you picture this? The shaking of the heavens will strip away all their social distinctions as the judgment of God equalizes all of mankind. Everyone. All equally cowering before God, the judge. Cowering. Because I think that is the right word. Because I think the judgment of God is going to be absolutely terrifying. Everyone, everyone in our text is hiding from the face of God and from the wrath of Christ. Yes, the wrath of the Lamb. Friends, Can I say this any more plainly this morning? In the midst of our somber moment, you, I, we do not want to meet God face to face apart from the saving faith in Christ. You will long to escape his presence. Revelation 6 pictures people crying out for the rocks and mountains to crush them. For that would be better than facing the wrath of God. Rocks and mountains crying out, crush me. The effect of God's judgment will be terrifying on those who have turned from him. And the duration of his judgment will be eternal. His judgment will be cosmic, it will be eternal, it will be terrifying And when that day does come, the door of his grace will be slammed shut forever. Revelation 6 closes with asking this question. Who can stand before this God? Who can stand before this God? Hang on. We're about to hit the bottom of the trampoline and come up because Revelation 7 beautifully answers that question. The final truth, God will save men and women who trust in him and live for another world. Let me just say this on the front end and I'll probably repeat it. Friends, believers, disciples of God, disciples of Jesus will never experience the wrath of God because Jesus has already taken your judgment and mine at the cross. Can you feel it? Here we come. We're coming up off the trampoline. Revelation 7, we see pictures of two groups of people. One, there's a throng of 144,000. The other, there's a multitude that no one can count, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Kathy did just such a beautiful job with the worship time last week where we had a different language that was spoken. Just what a picture of what heaven multiplied times hundreds of languages is going to be. 
I'm persuaded to think that these two pictures are the same people, but from different perspectives at different times. So let's address the time thing first, and I'll keep moving. We learn from chapter 7, verse 1, that John saw four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth. Then another angel calls and says in verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I think that picture is actually taking us back before the judgment, before the seals are opened before the earth was shaken and before it was destroyed. I think this picture depicts God before all that is happening, before his judgments, he's marking his people to protect them from the tribulation that he's about to bring. So who can withstand the wrath of God? I believe we see in these first eight verses of chapter seven, those who have the seal of the living God. The presence of the Holy Spirit is his seal. When you say yes to Jesus, you've got his seal. You've got his presence. You've got his spirit in you. So I will repeat, friends, if you have given your life to Jesus, you will never experience the wrath of God. Because Jesus has already taken that for you on the cross. We've been sealed, we're protected by God, and we're protected from all spiritual harm. We don't have to worry that God is going to change his mind. The judge is on our side. We can live fearlessly in the protective love of God. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, it's going to be challenges. But when you think big picture that you are protected by God, because here's what I do know. You and I, his people, are we're going to suffer as we proclaim Christ. Jesus told us so in Matthew 24. I'll read verse 9 for us. They will deliver you up to, with tribulation, up to tribulation, and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world, the whole world, as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So you may be saying, what? Where is the security of that? Again, I'll repeat. There will be persecution, but God promises his eternal protection. We're safe from his wrath. So with confidence, God empowers us to persevere. To the people struggling in the first century and to us today, we need to again realize God has sealed you as a child. As a result of his seal on you, Satan cannot overcome you. Suffering cannot destroy you. Death cannot stop you. You belong to God in Christ. He will keep you to the end, so trust in him. Realize who you are in him. Do you remember how chapter 6 ended? Who can stand face to face before this holy God in his wrath? Verses 9 and 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude 
that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hand and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All those who turn from their sin, friends, who turn from themselves and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. Having come through the tribulation, they have endured. That's who's standing at the, at the throne. That's who's standing before him in victory. What a picture. Standing in God's presence. We're going to shout with God in his victory. We're going to soak up his glory. And as I kind of close things up here, I want to point out, because one of my favorite things that I discovered, one of the things that meant the most to me is, listen to the last part of verse 15. Where it says, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Underline that. Shelter them with his presence. Literally, spread his presence or his glory over them. What a contrast from chapter 6 where people were cowering before the wrath of God and their sin. Now for all who have trusted in Christ, they're enjoying the wonder of God through their Savior. They'll be satisfied by his goodness. They'll neither hunger nor thirst. They will, they'll be soothed by his mercy. God will wipe away every tear. Sin will be gone. What a contrast to cowering in the mountains, praying for the rocks to crush. That's the top of the trampoline jump. Let me close with a couple of quick, urgent takeaways. That means maybe more so than our average action step. First, and I could talk about this, and I think you've gotten this point. Friends, repent of your sin with urgency. Don't wait. Don't be caught off guard. I'll say it this way. Friends, can I urge all of us to stop toying with sin? Because it devastates and it destroys Every one of us needs to be rescued by Jesus. So as we come to the table, or as you prepare to come to the table, will you be honest with yourself today? And maybe even more importantly, as you turn away from your sin, don't just turn away, but run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Second urgent takeaway, proclaim the gospel with urgency. Persevere in the mission, friends. Let that picture of the wrath of God and what that means for your loved ones, your coworkers, your teammates, your friends, your down the street neighbor, people, let that picture linger and persevere with the mission of bringing the gospel to those who desperately need it. Third and finally, before I bring Katie up, I urge you, I urge you, in the context of all of this, will you build your life and will you build the life of your family on that which lasts forever? Remember, all of creation is going to just be obliterated. All the things that we sit here today and think is important, it's going to be gone when his judgment comes. So, A little bit of a downer, maybe. 
there's great joy, there's great hope, and there's great excitement as we launch from this point because of who we are in Christ.